We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a draft bill on same-sex marriage, a contentious proposal for a peace accord with China, infrastructure funding disputes, a minor fine for a bottom-wiping incident, and Taiwan doing well in terms of gender equality, especially in the political arena. But we'll begin with President Tsai when telling CNN before telling those who can actually vote for her that she intends to seek re-election in next year's presidential election. Now, Tsai made the announcement during an interview with CNN's Matt Rivers, which was conducted aboard her presidential aircraft. And Tsai told Rivers that it's natural that any sitting president wants to do more for the country and wants to finish things on his or her agenda, and she's confident about her prospects. But, of course, being confident about her prospects is another thing as her approval rating remains below 40%. Now, the head of the DPP's organisational department says the party will begin its nomination process for the 2020 presidential election in March, which, of course, is next month. And Li Ching-Fong says if there's more than one candidate, the party will hold political platform presentations and carry out a national poll to determine its presidential candidate. And the DPP's presidential candidate is likely to be named by April. Meanwhile, the KMT's leader, Chairman Udini, has yet to announce whether he plans to run. Former new Taipei City Mayor, of course, Eric Ju, has formally announced that he's seeking the party's nomination, and of course he did that in December. Now this week, though, former Premier Simon Jung announced his plans to run, and former Legislative Speaker Wang Jingping says he'll announce his bid for Taiwan's top job next month, and of course former President Ma Ying-jeou is also being linked to a possible return to the presidential building. So Ross, Tsai Ing-wen telling the world that she wants to be re-elected before she tells the people that might vote for her that she wants to be re-elected. It's certainly an interesting method of making this announcement, although we should take a step back and keep in mind that this comes as no surprise. Notwithstanding the disastrous election results for the DPP in last November's local election, the open letter by uh, fellow travelers in the pro-independence side of Taiwan politics uh, at the beginning of January by four distinguished gentlemen uh, calling on her not to run. Uh, there, there was always signals that she was not going to give in and, and that she was going to seek re-election. So whether uh, she announced it uh, at this point in time or a few weeks from now when perhaps there's more clarity on the intentions of uh, Guomindang candidates or Taipei City Mayor Ko Wenzhe, this announcement was inevitable. But doing it uh, in, in a a early release, uh, you know, a clip of an interview that was only going to air uh, tonight, a few days later after this initial clip was was released by CNN, is it, certainly unusual and in, uh, perhaps justifiably it's gotten some criticism uh, by uh, people on her side of politics and obviously uh, her political opponents, whether they're Gomindaba or other, are also going to criticize this method of making that announcement because it was done, as you said, with an English language television station that, frankly, very few people watch in Taiwan. Um, well, I, I mean, she's a technocrat, and this is a, she's always been strong in the international side, and she's not she's never been really comfortable with being, you know, the 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 politician of the people kind of thing. Uh, although she did take the um, the journalist out uh, to eat and uh, install. 
Shimanding uh, and, and and this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, she that she used CNN is it, but on the one hand it both underscores and emphasizes her you know her technocrat uh, diplomatic uh, skills. I mean her background is as a diplomat. It is as a foreign educated uh, person. And the, but the thing is that in Taiwan that's not necessarily considered a bad thing. So. And the other thing is that CNN gets a lot of uh, whatever is said or done related to Taiwan on uh, on CNN is widely covered in the local media. So I, 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 I suspect she thought it through. She brought the journalist through the you know through the paces in places like Ximending, but she was also speaking on the plane. So she kind of she kind of parsed it several ways. In other words, she got you know. Uh, she she got I think she got the coverage that she wanted to get. I, I do think it was well thought through. Uh, I, I'd have to disagree. I, I, I just don't think. Uh, well, I agree that it was well thought through, but the impact uh, I would disagree with because I, I just don't think that the voters of Taiwan are are going to be saying, "Wow, this was done in a CNN interview that will be uh, po- possibly watched by viewers all over the world." Uh, I think it would have been much more effective to use a methodology that Gavin had suggested, which is you make this announcement. Announcement to your supporters. This is what candidates do in a democracy all over the world. Maybe you, you don't you don't pick some some media that really just is not watched by the locals. So going forward, no one's going to remember that it was, well, it was on CNN or that uh, X tens of thousands of people around the world happen to tune into that program, especially because voters outside of Taiwan don't vote in the in the upcoming election. What people are going to remember is that instead of uh, rallying her supporters or making this announcement to the voters of Taiwan, she did it on a, on a foreign news channel. I think it was actually very clever. Um, <clears throat> the thing is, is that the one thing that she's done, and this is the one area of strength that Taiwan, that she's had, you know, through throughout the, you know, all of her trials and tribulations, is that she's gained the support of the United States and the United. And, and there's a very big difference between 2012, when basically, you know, the U.S. flat out undermined her campaign. Now the U.S. is is backing her. Uh, the U.S. is pretty much strongly behind her. She's handled international affairs quite well. She's gotten a lot of uh, support from you know just you know just in the last few days or in the last few weeks. You get it from the EU, um, from the U.S. She's been getting a lot of this international support. And the thing is, is that when you say that the CNN is not widely watched by Taiwanese, it, it, it's extremely widely watched by Taiwanese, but it's filtered through the local media. And so when anything appears in the overseas media related to Taiwan, especially, most importantly, CNN, uh, the local media is going to be all over it. They're going to crawl all over it, and they're going to cover it ad nauseum. And so it was, you know, if, if she was going to pick an, a, one outlet that's going to be covered by the local media constantly, she picked the right one. I mean, if she picked a local media, there's going to be jealousy and infighting and so on and so forth. Now, she could have picked, and I agree, there would have been some value in you know, rallying the base, but she's not a politician of the people. That's never been her shtick. That's never been where you know, her appeal lies. So, you know, that she's... Um, you know that she's she picks CNN, and considering that right recently, most recently, she just got her big uh, you know opinion poll bounce 
from standing up to China. Again, it's her international affairs, her diplomatic cred, and also that keeps her above the domestic fray. And this is where her weakness has always lied, is that she's been hit repeatedly on the, on the domestic political issues. That's where she's been hit, you know, constantly and hard. And so she can rise above it uh, and remind people of her strengths in that area, and which is what she wants to do. And she can, of course, dump all the... Um, you know, all the local, you know, all the political debacles going on within the local politics on the premiere. But of course, there, there was a headline in an article about Taiwan this week and the publication, I forget. But of course, it talked about the KMT candidates going to America, Ross. And I'll be the headline was something like, they're, they're like a, job interviews. Job interviews. I mean, can we look at the Thai CNN interview? I mean, was she baying for support from America by going on CNN? Well,. It- she was just trying to get some international press coverage. I, again, I have to strongly disagree with what Donovan said. It's not about picking one TV station. The appropriate way to do this would have been to have some kind of press conference or a rally that would have been covered by uh, every media in Taiwan would have attended this, as well as foreign media, and, and the foreign media would have covered it and said, Tsai uh, announces re-election. I mean, the way Donovan described it almost makes it sound like she's desperate. She's desperate uh, to, to show that she has good international credibility, uh, because uh, the voters were so disappointed with the execution of domestic policy. And frankly, whether or not she wins re-election is going to turn largely on execution by her government of domestic policy. It's not going to turn on uh, what, what Donovan called her, you know, her good international uh, credentials, which frankly I, I think is, is, is not any of her doing. There is a, a global dissatisfaction, to say the least, with China's policies and, and Taiwan benefits from that, uh, led, of course, by the United States government's policies to counter some of China's activities. So Taiwan's current government, regardless of who it is, gets to benefit from that. Uh, but uh, you know, as far as your 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 question, you know, Gavin, it's clear she just wanted to steal some of the spotlight from all this discussion about uh, Guomindang candidates and, and, and Taipei City Maricopa and Jia, uh, who's also planning a U.S. visit soon, uh, but by getting them out of the news, right? So when Eric Julie Lun, uh, KMT candidate, is, is making speeches at, at Stanford and possibly getting um, some international media coverage. What does Sai do? She does an interview with English language uh, international media. So clearly trying to divert attention or divert some of the media coverage that would have gone to uh, the people traveling, other you know, political opponents traveling overseas. Sorry, I'm going to have to strongly disagree with that. I really think that actually uh, her her biggest uh, avenue to being reelected will be on the international issues. What does that um, mean, though? I mean, what is she going to say to the voters? Well, because here's the thing: is that the the biggest problem that the KMT has in getting in in getting reelected to the presidency now, and this is this is a fundamental flaw that they've got, is that they're. Their, their, you know, their ideology regarding China is so out of tune now, with, you know, with the with the popular will in in Taiwan, that they're willing to, you know, the backlash is strong against the uh, against uh, against the DPP when it comes to uh, electing local politicians. I think that the voters are going to be a lot more cautious when it comes to choosing a president in the next election when they're considering the whatever that that person's opinion is regarding China and whatever that person uh, how whatever that person's regard is held overseas. Well, there's a difference between be there's a difference very, very between there's issue. a difference think, between China and policy and international earlier, policies. What, what you said earlier about uh, the, you know she's just simply a, a, a 
benefactor of changing opinions on China. That's partly true, but I also think that she very specifically has cultivated and ridden that tide extremely well. Um, and she has, you know, she has very cleverly played both China and the United States in a way that she's le- leveraged everything that the United States wants to hear and buttressed it and advanced it. So I think that she's, she has gone above and beyond just simply being there, which is the, basically what you were suggesting, that, oh, just simply because she happened to be the president in Taiwan, that she was a beneficiary of this. And I really think that she was, she's been very active and, and deserves a lot of credit for that. Right, of course, we talked about policies there and voter support for policies. And we're moving on to a policy now, a rather contentious policy, because that's because the Cabinet this week approved a draft bill to serve as the basis for same-sex marriage. Now, the bill is officially called the Enforcement Act of Judicial UN Interpretation Number 748, and it's the first time a bill has ever been named after a constitutional interpretation. Now, the draft bill covers areas such as inheritance rights, medical rights, adoption of children and monogamy, and it includes 27 articles in all. Now, the bill is now going to be sent to the Legislative UN for lawmakers to review by March the 1st, and Premier Su Jung Tung says the bill is expected to be enacted by May the 24th. But of course, is it enough to bring an end to criticism of the government's slow progress in legalising same-sex marriage? And to help explain this, I spoke with Deutsche Welle Taiwan correspondent William Young. Good evening, William. Good evening. So, I mean, the intro there I gave, I mean, do you think it goes away to end criticism of the government's handling of the same-sex marriage issue? I think it shows that uh, the government is really trying to find a way to bridge the gap between the anti-marriage equality camp and the supporting side in terms of the wording of the uh, the, the draft itself. Like we can see that uh, the government uh, very specifically avoided uh, using terms that could trigger backlash from the anti-marriage equality camp while being criticized for. Uh, not upholding uh, the ruling by the Constitutional Court two years ago. So I think this is probably one of the uh, most, like, neutral ways for them to name the legislation moving forward. But do you think this is going to make everybody happy? Uh, this is clearly not really making the uh, the supporting side satisfied, as they have already uh, said in their statement that... Uh, they think this is a political compromise that the supporting side needs to accept. While the uh, anti-marriage policy said that, who I just talked to, pretty much called this a, a way to uh, not uh, respect the uh, result of the referendum because they believe that the government is intentionally trying to recognize the result of the constitutional court's ruling rather than recognizing the result of last year's referendum. Right, what about the issues that the bill covers? Uh, the issues that the uh, bill covers, uh, currently there are, like m- most of the major issues have been uh, mentioned, which uh, includes the rights to get married, the rights to adopt, and the rights to inherit. However, there are some details uh, where uh, the supporting site is pretty concerned about how the government is going to guarantee that the same-sex couples can, uh, you know, pretty much enjoy the same rights as other of uh, the rest of the citizens. For example, uh, according to the draft version, uh, 
the government specifically avoided using the wording of couples and partners, and they choose a very, very vague wording of both parties to uh, address uh, the rights of the same-sex couples. So that shows that the government is really trying to avoid uh, angering and uh, like upsetting the anti-marriage equality camp. Additionally, uh, another uh, aspect of the law that's really uh, lacking the uh, specific details is the adoption rights. Uh, right now, according to the draft, uh, same-sex couples are only allowed to, one party of the same-sex couple is allowed to adopt the biological children of another party. However, uh, the same-sex couples uh, are not allowed to adopt together. So that really limits the rights of the adoption, and uh, it really makes a difference in terms of how uh, same-sex couples are guaranteed the rights to really raise a child together. Uh, so, like, uh, the supporting side has already uh, raised the issue and said that uh, they will follow up uh, and see how the government, the legislature, is going to uh, knock out the details of the uh, specific uh, clauses in the special law. Ryan, of course, the Premier has said that the bill will be enacted on May the 24th, which, of course, coincides with the date that the Constitutional Court ruled that basically, well, same-sex marriage was unconstitutional. So, I mean, do you think there'll be a big party that day or a rather muted party? Uh, I honestly cannot predict at this point because, uh, after all, uh, the... The, the, the result of the referendum already uh, set the tone for how the uh, actual marriage rights are going to be written into law. However, I think after waiting for two years and after going through so much uh, up, up and down uh, through the process, I think ultimately uh, the uh, LGBTQ community in Taiwan will uh, stand with the uh, final law and uh, celebrate the fact that uh, they can now uh, officially get married and get recognized as, uh, you know, a legally married uh, couples. Right, yeah. do you, but do you think they'll be pushing for more rights? I think they will be pushing for, as I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, the specific details and ensure that uh, they will be able to uh, pretty much uh, form a family that enjoy rights uh, like all the other heterosexual families in Taiwan, because uh, if they are not, they, they've been arguing and they continue to argue that if they were not able to form a family and enjoy the same rights as all the other uh, couples and uh, family in Taiwan, then uh, that the law uh, basically is uh, not upholding and the interpretation that the Constitutional Court uh, handed down uh, two years ago. Right, and do we know yet whether this new ruling will allow foreigners to come here and marry locals? So these, uh, this specific problem has actually been brought up by uh, quite some uh, Twitter followers on Taiwan uh, on, because a lot of them there have a Taiwanese partner or they are residing in Taiwan and maybe have the intention to stay longer. And uh, according to the draft so far, there is no specific clause at all mentioning whether uh, cross nation couples will be able to get married and whether their marriage will be recognized, you know, as legal and uh, whether the foreign spouse will be able to, uh, in, I, I guess, like, uh, re receive a Taiwan, 
county citizenship or a permanent residence uh, through their marriage uh, with a Taiwanese uh, partner. So I think that's also a point where the same-sex supporting side has uh, brought up, and they specifically mentioned that they will uh, closely follow the development on that particular front. So I think it's at least encouraging that the issue is being brought up by the supporting side and it will uh, most likely be included into one of the demands that they will continue to push the legislature to ensure in the final version of the law. And that was me in conversation with Deutsche Welle Taiwan correspondent William Young. So, Ross, I mean, too little, too late. Will it not going to make everyone happy, of course, is it? It's not going to make anyone happy. Uh, it's, it's not going to make the opponents of marriage equality happy, obviously, because they don't want to see any uh, legalization under any uh, legal construct, any name of the law uh, to occur at all. Uh, but the, the referendum result uh, only changes the, this legal construct, so they weren't able to, they're not able to prevent it from happening in a court, because that's what the constitutional uh, court requires, is that there is some kind of legal construct to allow marriage equality. But obviously, the supporters of marriage equality do not like this construct. They always want to change to the civil law. The, the, they lost the referendum battle, so the civil law can't be changed. But you know, s- starting from the name of, of the law, yeah, it's it's a disappointment. You know, this was always the concern of the marriage equality side is they, they they wanted to change the civil law. They didn't want to have some kind of special law because it's having a special law is inherently dis- discriminatory. And not even calling the law something related to marriage equality, of course the supporters of marriage equality are going to see this as inherently uh, – not just discriminatory, but frankly denigrating. So it, it's understandable uh, that they do not like the name, uh, as as William indicated. There's uh, drafting shortcomings in the version that the the Ministry of Justice and now the Executive UN has 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 approved and, and sent to the Legislative UN. Whether or not those shortcomings could be revised once this is debated in the Legislative UN remains to be seen. Uh, whether or not the political parties will uh, allow their legislators to vote their conscience so that you'd have some DPP legislators voting for, some against, some Guomindang voting for, some against, uh, also remains to be seen. So whether there'll be a party whip or not, uh, we don't know. But we have to always keep in mind that we're in this situation because the the government of, of Tsai Ing-wen which uh, and Tsai Ing-wen, as, as a, a politician before being elected president, has supported marriage equality. When she came into office and with a very large majority in the legislative UN, they did not take care of this. And it wound up going to the constitutional court because the legislative UN did not act. And that brings us to the situation we're in today. And that's a very important fact in, in this discussion. And, and, need, and, and people on all sides of the bit, debate need to keep in mind and, and assign the political responsibilities appropriately. So, Donovan, do you think the government should have done something about this a year ago, a year and six months ago? A long time ago. I mean, this this is, you know, in in the last segment, you know, I, I talked about, I, I think that, that Tsai when uh, and her government has done a really excellent job on handling, you know, uh, affairs internationally. Uh, they've been a disaster uh, on some issues domestically, and this this being right at the top of the list. Um, <clears throat> the the issue the the party and this was this is something a, a distinction that a lot of people have not been paying attention to uh 
But the the fact of the matter is, is that during the you know during the campaign, uh, I noticed that the party, the DPP, never uh, never lined up officially behind a marriage equality, but. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen said she personally supported it. And so what ended up happening is is that it, among supporters and amongst opponents of marriage equality, the party became associated with it. And then supporters of marriage equality were deeply disappointed when basically the DPP did everything they could to to bury the issue, to avoid it, to dodge it, to uh, you know, and um, and opponents uh, it just assumed that the DPP was secretly supporting it and voted against them. So they managed to lose the pro and anti marriage equality crowd, and they're continuing on basically the same path. Um, the you know the they if they passed it. It, when they first got elected, it would have been forgotten by now. The 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 you know the the justices handed them the perfect opportunity to say to throw up their hands and say you know and and appeal to the conservative base of the DPP say you know look we have no choice legally we have to pass this. <clears throat> they could have gotten it would done long time ago before the election. And they didn't. And they've been dropping the ball. They've been passing the buck. They've been doing everything they can. And they're continuing to do it. The way that this law is, that they put it in, is starting from, you know, as Ross noted, the name, the, um, you know, children, they can half adopt. It has to be biological, but, you know, it has to be biologically related to one of the members they can't adopt, non-biologically related. Uh, in other words, there's a series of exceptions, which means that it's no, it's not actually equal. Um, and <clears throat> that's, that's, kind of, that's disappointing, and it's, it's against the spirit of the, of the uh, judicial ru- ruling. So it's, they're basically have already put out a draft of a law which is, <clears throat> in effect, not living up to the justice standard, then they're going to put that onto the floor of the legislative UN. And already uh, speaking to the, you know, the, the voting, the conscience, the, the KMT has already said that their members can vote however they want. Um, and so we'll see what happens with, with the DPP. But even if they line up behind the current draft, which is flawed uh, legally um, <clears throat> and doesn't live up to the judicial ruling, yeah, even if they pass that, it's going to be in the courts for a long time because of that. And it, it, there's a good chance that if the DPP doesn't pull together and put that through, they're going to throw in more exceptions and more problems, you know, and, and create more legal problems. Uh, and then, of course, we have the whole logistical issue, if they don't pass the law fairly quickly, of creating all the forms, creating all the you know, all the documentation and systems to actually implement it uh, going forward. And so, and that has to be done by by May. So, they're, you know, they're, they're running out of time. So th- this right now, I, I'm, I'm caught, I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the process of this. Right, anyway, disparity seems to be the theme of today's show, and we'll continue with disparity, that being about opposing views about the signing of a proposed peace accord with China, which were loudly voiced this week following KMT Chairman Udunese's comments announcement. 
something he might have mumbled or said sort of subtly, that his party will seek to sign such an agreement if it regains the presidency in 2020. Now, the DPP is describing such an agreement as that of surrender that is bound to fail. And Su Jung Chung, the Premier, of course, says that he opposes the signing of a peace deal with China as it will be impossible to sign such an agreement with a country that continues to threaten to use force against the island. The KMT, though, of course, is busy defending the move and party spokesman Oh Young Long said that such an agreement between the two sides will only be based on the premises of reciprocity and dignity. And he says that... It won't be signed otherwise. Now, the government this week also said that it'll seek to prioritise legislation during the current legislative session that will subject any peace accord with China to a national referendum. So, referendums again, Ross. They went badly wrong for the DPP recently, if I remember. Well, reopening the referendum law does come with a lot of risks, uh, whether changing the thresholds to have referendums or the topics that could be covered. Uh, there's, I think there's been a bit of an overreaction to what uh, Chairman Wu Doni said in this regard. It's just a very theoretical possibility. It always has been one to sign a, a some kind of accord w- with China. So for for a, a politician in Taiwan to suggest it as something uh, aspirational, uh, yeah. It's just aspirational. Then, as the KMT spokesman said, that there'd be conditions. Uh, obviously, the likelihood of signing such an agreement is low, regardless of who the president is in Taiwan or which party is the majority party in the legislative UN. Uh, so, a lot of overreaction. People will probably forget about this in a few days or weeks. I think he's sing- signaling to the base and. Um I, I, I think he's trying to sound like Mind Joe, I, and you know he's basically Mind Joe's. Uh, he's in Mind Joe's camp. He was Mind Joe's protege, and I, I think he's trying to sound like Mind Joe. Basically, I think that that that's and that's who he's trying to appeal to is the Mind Joe voters, Mind Joe supporters, uh, and people who are disappointed with the Tsai administration. He wants to reset the clock to uh, uh, to twenty fifteen. Well, I think any KMT president would, would uh, to use Donovan's words, reset in, in the sense that they would probably emphasize 92 consensus and, and seek to conduct relations uh, on, on the same basis that the Ma government did, uh, under which the two sides signed a number of agreements covering trade and other issues. Obviously, they didn't sign any kind of peace accord. Uh, so again, uh, the likelihood of this happening is, is uh, very slim in, in the near term. Uh, whether it will help Wu win a KMT primary against Eric Zhu or, or Wang Jinping or any other candidate who decides to run for the KMT nomination, uh, I, I would also say it's probably largely irrelevant. So uh, by the time they, they get to having debates uh, in the KMT primary, this probably won't even be mentioned, or if it does, it's not really going to have much of an impact on voter decisions simply because it's such a, a unlikely possibility at this stage. But it does obviously give the government uh, uh, something to criticize the KMT over and say, you see, they're 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 going to sell out Taiwan, so you can't vote for them. Uh, whether that might be a, an effective talking point today, uh, again, given how unlikely the possibility of any kind of 
peace accord with China is, whether or not this is an effective talking point once the KMT has a candidate, whether it's Wu or someone else. And as we get closer to the election, so in the, in the fourth quarter of this year, will the KMT uh, be uh, at risk of the DM- DPP saying, don't vote for the KMT because they're going to sign a peace accord? Uh, remains to be seen, but probably very unlikely. I think by that point in time, uh, the, the debate will return to, do we believe in the 92 consensus and, and mostly domestic economic issues? Yeah, it's, that's basically correct. I mean, the the the, the thing is, I, Wu Duany is doing pretty much everything he can. You know, as the party chair, he's the presumptive nominee. But the, the fact of the matter is, I don't think anybody thinks he'll actually win if he's if he's actually the party's nominee. So um, uh, he's he's trying to rally support. He, he you know he, he's pitched increasing the party membership or a percentage of the uh, decision-making process in determining the party's nominee during the primary. Uh, because the fact, the fact is he can't win uh, in the public opinion polls. And so he's doing everything he can to shore up his support within the party because he knows that's where he's strong. He's not strong in, the, in public opinion. Right, now this is when we normally take a short break, but this is a podcast-only show because the show is not being broadcast today on the radio because the radio station is doing an outside broadcast from the Lantern Festival in Ping Dong. So you won't have to listen to the plinky-plonky music. You can listen to me instead filling up space, basically. Anyway, we shall jump straight in with the next topic, which of course is disputes between the central and local governments over funding for infrastructure projects. Well, it's continuing to play out live on television and on rerun this week on cable television news, and the most prominent of these disputes is between the Thai administration and Gao Xiong's new mayor, Han Guoyu, who is busy accusing the central government of attempting to cut its funding to the city for political reasons. An allegation, of course, the central government is denying but, Ross, of course, we saw this under the Mar administration. The people in the South felt left out by the Mar government because they were in the wrong party, and we're seeing it here, only vice versa. So it's unclear how that would benefit the DPP, though, because uh, there is going to be the presidential and legislative event elections uh, next January. So angering voters in uh, Kaohsiung, vote-rich area that went for the KMT this time, uh, it could impact not necessarily the presidential election, but it certainly could impact uh, legislative UN seats and, and, and how voting uh, turns uh, for those. Uh, so the principal thing, putting aside politics, which, of course, is difficult in, in an electoral democracy, but the principal thing would be to continue with the plans that have been agreed to for the allocation of funds under the forward-looking infrastructure spending plan, which was an enormous infrastructure spending uh, budget that was approved by the DPP's majority uh, at the time, working with many local uh, elected leaders who, who were DPP, such as in Kaohsiung or in Taichung. Uh, so to change those plans now, uh, it, it comes across as politics. So, oh, well, everything needs to be reassessed. And, oh, this is normal. This is SOP because there's a, there's a new mayor in Taichung or Kaohsiung or other locations. I, I don't think the public or the voters are going to really going to believe that argument. So they're going to see this as a bit of retribution politics. It doesn't hurt the KMT. It don't, uh, uh, politically, it's only going to hurt the DPP. So they have to be very careful here. 
And the voters are not going to believe that the central government would be taking these decisions uh, to look at some of these spending plans anew had the DPP candidates won election in these jurisdictions. So had Chen Chi Mai won in Kaohsiung or Lin Jialong been reelected in Taichung, would we even be having this discussion or would those previously approved spending plans just be proceeding uh, as had already been agreed? And you know, Donovan, of course, would, would know better than us because he's in Taichung. You know, but the, this great irony here is that you know, the former mayor of Taichung, who lost by a substantial amount, is now the Minister of Transportation and Communications and, and has a significant input in uh, how these monies are spent, which projects move forward, the speed at which these projects move forward. So one would hope that now that he's in the central government, he would follow his commitment that he made when he went into the central government a few weeks ago as the minister and that he was going to do things for Taichung, notwithstanding that the voters threw him out by a large amount. Uh, so, you know, one would hope he'd be the biggest champion for spending this money uh, as agreed uh, in Taichung, not cutting the amounts, not uh, changing the schedule, uh, but also for, for the other places as well. I mean, where would they reallocate this money to anyway, uh, the, the, now that there's so few uh, DPP-held local jurisdictions? So, uh, although I, I always felt that the, the spending plan ha- had a large amount of waste and some of the projects were probably unnecessary and just for the purpose of politics, uh, it, it now comes across as retribution politics if they're going to uh, change some of the spending plans. So wasted money in Taichung, Donovan. Have you seen many of that? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the whole forward-looking infrastructure thing was basically a, 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 it's a colossal vote-buying process which failed. Um, they they put it in, and because traditionally, obviously, the money you know the KMT-led governments, the KMT has controlled the legislature since forever, and the DPP thought that finally they could go come in, splash around a lot of money. Disrupt the old uh, KMT patronage networks uh, in the center and the south, and they could, uh, you know, uh, in, you know, introduce regional uh, justice where you know, traditionally the KMT spent all the money in the north, <clears throat> and the DPP <clears throat> could spend the money in their strongholds. And the, I think the idea was that would help them get reelected uh, in the last year's local elections. The problem is, is that these infrastructure projects were so big, so massive, and so costly that they never really – they didn't kick in in time for the average voter to see any, you know, see any of the results of it. So most of the forward-looking infrastructure projects, you know, they haven't even broken ground yet. They're huge, massive amounts of money that are still largely drafts or their plans that have been agreed on, and they're going to break ground this year, next year, the year after. Uh, but they, they, you know, none of them actually kicked in fast enough to help them at the, at the ballot box. Um, so now they're the DPP sitting, the DPP government is sitting here and holding the kind of holding the bag on this. You know, this ma- all these massive spending projects. Now, the DPP, the KMT governments come in, and of course, the KM, b- the both parties do this here. 
they're just simply reactionary to whatever the previous government was. Lin Jialong did it to to the policies of uh, Jason Hu when he came in. And, of course, now we've got Liu Xiaoyan coming in and, and kicking out some policies of uh, Lin Jialong. Now, the big one here in Taichung is the Yamanote line, or uh, which I previously got confused with the Shinkansen, because both are both Japanese terms are used here for the local infrastructure, uh, transport infrastructure, quite a bit. Um, but the Yamanote line, which is a, a circular line which connects the ocean and the mountain lines of the, uh, the TRA lines, the Taiwan Rail, Rail, Railway uh, lines, which turns it into essentially a local commuter loop. Now, the, uh, unlike what Ross said, is that it's not that the local, uh, it's not that the the DPP is not living up to its uh, promises on this one, and Lin Jialong is not living up as, to the promises as a transport minister. They are trying to hold um, Liu Xiaoyan, the new mayor, to the agreement that was already signed under Lin Jialong when he was mayor, which is that they were going to go ahead with the project and the payment structure was uh, split between the city government and the central government. Uh, Lu Xiaoyan is saying, sure, we'll go ahead and do it if the central government pays for the entire thing, which was not the agreement which was signed before. So the DPP is trying to hold her to the agreement that was made between Lin Jialong's government uh, and the central government uh, back, uh, you know, back last year. Well, the, the problem is, is the finances of some of these local jurisdictions uh, aren't that good. I mean, they, they have a lot of accumulated debt, which some of these new leaders are are discovering uh, within their first uh, two months in office. And you know, one of the things that is an unknown is had uh, these DPP local leaders been reelected and they ran into the same financial challenges with funding their share with the central government uh, of the same political party have come in and, and helped them out, whether through allocations uh, at the legislative UN level or uh, changing the spending plans at, at the uh, forward infrastructure uh, spending budget level. So, uh, uh, yes, uh, there may have been some agreements, but you know, could could those city governments uh, have actually upheld those agreements, or did they make those agreements knowing that well, we'll actually figure out where the money's going to come from later? Especially as it's it's our it's our friends at the central government or in control of the legislative UN. So uh, it, it's not really fair to to blame the newly elected local leaders for looking again at the financing uh, of these projects. And we should, we should also keep in mind, you know, for, for our international audience, this is not unusual when, when uh, uh, there's a political party shift in, in local government. We certainly see this in the United States, uh, even just recently in the news with, with regard to a project in California, a high-speed rail project that's um, uh, that a new governor has now stopped. So we do see new 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 elected leaders coming in and questioning the financing. And, and again, uh, you know, these local leaders who were thrown out or, or not not elected, uh, incumbent party not reelected, such as in in Gaoxiong or, or the incumbent mayor not reelected in Taichung, you know, would they have gone to the central government for, for a handout? In the future, uh, it's very likely. So, uh, I don't think it's fair to put some of the blame on on the local leaders, newly elected local leaders, who are reexamining the finances. I, I think it depends on the local leader in which the project is. 
Um, in, in, in terms of questioning the financing here in Taichung, I think that it was absolutely correct in, in the sense that uh, Lu Xiaoyan's finance uh, director came out just recently and said, essentially, all the money's been borrowed uh, with the implication uh, that the, the city's gone really close to its borrowing limit. And it's true that under Lin Jialong, uh, city spending went through through the roof. Um, and so, you know, in in Taichung's case, re-examine, re-examining the the spending and the finances is is probably quite correct. Um, in in some cases, however, um, for example, in Zhanghua, where uh, Wang Huimei got got uh, kind of prickly, in, in spite of it not really costing the county government much, and actually having potential huge tax benefits. Uh, through a wrench in the works on approving the um, offshore wind from companies like Orsted, the offshore wind projects, and didn't sign them in, under the old uh, uh, the feed-in tariff rules, so, which actually has thrown Taiwan's credibility with overseas investors in the massive offshore wind uh, industry into doubt, and, and there's, been a, there's now a lot of suspicion and confusion uh, in the industry, and uh, that is in part <laughs> that's a uh, the, the the reasons for that. Of course, are the blame is is basically a mixture of the DPP government uh, changing policies, and then uh, Wang Weimei being unpredictable and throwing a wrench in the works. Right, and talking of blame, Ever Airways was fined by the Office of Labour Inspection this week over its handling of a much-publicised incident last month when a passenger asked a flight attendant to remove his underpants and wipe his bottom after using the toilet. Now, the airline was fined a total of amazingly huge amount of 60,000 NT, and the fine was issued on the grounds that the airline violated the Occupational Safety and Health Act for failing to implement preventive measures to ensure the safety of cabin crew members. Now, the incident, of course, occurred on a flight from Los Angeles to Taipei and made international news. So, Ross, the airline made a bit of a mess of this when it happened, no pun intended, but now they may find the meagre amount of 60,000 NT. There you go. Well, one of the unfortunate outcomes of all the the, uh, developments in this case is it it shows again the, the resentment, for a lack of a better word, that uh, so many people who just go to their job and work hard every day in Taiwan feel towards their employers, or, or uh, the, in this case, uh, it's not just the employer, but it's, it's government as well, that uh, this, we have to take a step back and remember, why did this become news uh, in the method that it did? Uh, at the end of the flight, the flight attendant complained uh, internally at the airline. The, the, the passenger made this request, although I, I, I adhered to it. I wasn't sure what the right thing to do was. Uh, I, I feel you know, so so violated for, for having done this. And, and the airline really didn't seem to care in the first instance. It was kind of like their reaction was like, okay, good job, thanks. And, and they left it at that. It, and you know, she was really understandably looking for you know, some kind of uh, support justice from the airline uh, that maybe they give her a bigger pat on the back uh, uh, for you know, give her some extra days off for going above and beyond the call uh, banning the passenger uh, so she 
with her union held a press conference, the media came and it became a a new sensation. And and then the airline uh, for a a few days after uh, their, their statements uh, were a bit inconsistent uh, about how they were handling the situation and what level of uh, response and support they were giving to this flight attendant. You know, at one point they said they would support her if she wanted to take legal action, which I I don't really understand. It's not like uh, she has the resources to, to go to Los Angeles and sue him. Suing him uh, in in Taipei would be silly since he doesn't live here. Uh, The the first instance, the airline really should have, uh, as I said, they could have given her some time off. If she really needed counseling, they could have, of course, offered counseling. Uh, They should have banned the passenger in the first instance. Uh, And now it takes weeks for for some kind of government intervention. Uh, They're just trying to score some political points and say, we're on the side of labor. Uh, But this fine... Of such a, a tiny amount of money, you, know, you, you, you could see what happened here, right? The government you know, was struggling to show that they're on the side of labor. Then they struggled to find some legal basis to take some minimal action against the airline, and then they resulted in this this fine, which is like you know two economy class tickets from from uh, Taipei to to L.A. Right? It's it, it's it's a minuscule amount of money for the airline. It's probably what they spend on wasted food uh, on every flight. Uh, so, you know, no, no one is going to be happy with this outcome. The, you know, the flight attendant's not going to be happy. Her union's not going to be happy. The public, again, they're it breeds resentment against employers. It breeds resentment against government policy. So, you know, another uh, unfortunate labor relations public policy issue where the stakeholders, other than the victim, don't come across well. Yeah, that, that's basically correct. I mean, the, the the whole thing is just kind of silly from one end to the other. I think the um, <clears throat> the employee in, que- in question, I believe, has also been awarded some uh, time off. Uh, the airline said that the, there have been previous pol- problems with this passenger, and, he, and in future the, he's going to have to bring his own assistant, uh, you know, uh, it's 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 been kind of an all running around, covering your ass kind of policy, you know, situation. And I, the 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 silly thing is, is I you know I, it's it's such a bizarre, odd circumstance. Um, in the, in the first place, I mean, you know, he he had disabilities. Why was he flying, knowing that he had this? Uh, you know, is the fault uh, the, the 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 passenger or the airline or the? Uh, yeah, it, it's it's just an odd situation from one end to the other. It was rather odd, but of course, it did get Taiwan column inches for several weeks, which is probably more than tying when's going to get for a CNN interview. Anyway, we'll move on. Now, the government this week said that Taiwan ranks first in Asia and eighth in the world in terms of gender equality due to its higher female participation in politics. Now, the rankings are based on a criteria used in the Gender Inequality Index, which, of course, is produced by the United Nations Development Programme. Now, the index measures inequality between female and male achievements in the areas of reproductive health, empowerment and the labour market. And the rankings show that female participation in politics here has been on the rise, with women now holding 38.1% of the parliamentary seats in 2017, and that was up 16.9 percentage points from 2007, rather. And the female-to-male ratio in parliamentary participation is higher than any 
other Asian countries, including Singapore, China, South Korea, and Japan. A surprise, Ross, or not really? Not really, because, uh, well, for starters, the president of Taiwan is, is a woman. Uh, so clearly voters in Taiwan are, are, have no um, concerns. Uh, they don't discriminate based on gender when electing leaders uh, all the way up to the level of president, uh, as well as legislators or local elected leaders such as mayors. Uh, the KMT elected several women, uh, or the voters, I should say, elected KMT candidates uh, in last November's local elections to be mayors. Uh, This is not new. Women have been prominent in Taiwan politics, uh, not just in the democracy era, but in the martial law era as well. So uh, women who are leaders in the fight to bring democracy to Taiwan, obvious examples like Chun Ju or former Vice President uh, Annette Lucia Liet. So uh, the public... Uh, are very accustomed in in Taiwan uh, to uh, seeing women in politics, electing leaders. Taiwan also is not necessarily part of that study, but but as distinguished from other uh, countries in the region, Taiwan also has a very large number of successful, prominent women in the business world as well, something uh, that, that is much less common in Japan and, and South Korea. It's, it's common in, in Hong Kong, to a lesser extent Singapore, but also not as common uh, as it is here in Taiwan. But, but the but listeners, uh, I would suggest, should also keep in mind something. When you, when you make these claims about politics in Asia and how many women are elected, we're only comparing against a very small number of countries. You know, to compare against a, a dictatorship where people don't elect uh, directly or even indirectly in some cases the members of parliament or other political offices, whether it's China or Vietnam, Brunei, uh, you know, Th- Thailand has has been under a, a military government um, since the previous coup, although they have an election upcoming. Uh, it, it, it's almost a pointless exercise because you're only comparing it against uh, a, a few other countries that are truly democracies. So you're comparing it against uh, – a, uh, you shouldn't really compare it against every country in Asia. You should really only compare like with like, which would be the countries that are democracies like Taiwan. So yes, Taiwan has a better record, but we're going off a very small sample size to compare against. Yeah, I, I think uh, Jenna Jenna Lynn Cody and, and, and Laura and Chashi made that essentially that point, which is is that Taiwan wins in a hurdle over a very low bar. Um, that yeah, comparing to the other countries in Asia was is not really a very high bar. Um, and that yes, Taiwan has uh, you know as Ross noted has, has done some uh, you know has has some successes, some mandated, some genuine, uh, you know, genuinely popularly supported. Um, but there are so, still some very big hurdles, I think. Um, uh, and some of the, the, the biggest ones are uh, adultery laws uh, tend to be very stacked against women, um, although in theory they apply to both genders. Um, the uh, Divorce laws, they've made all, more progress on, but there's still a ways to go. Uh, the libel laws locally make it very, very hard uh, for a woman who's been sexually assaulted um, or harassed to come forward because she can be sued for libel uh, for saying anything uh, and be bogged down in a countersuit. So uh, a lot of 
things get swept under the rug. Uh, and again, it's sort of stacked against women in, in, in that sort of sense. And of course, you know, coming back to the marriage equality law, uh, that we talked about the, at the beginning of the show, some of the the, the biological relations uh, elements that were sort of thrown into the into the adoption of children smell very traditional family, and, and it's probably related it's very specifically to the the referendum traditional family uh, uh, vote. Uh, in last November, so uh, there's still still ways to go. Right. Anyway, Donovan, we'll leave it there, mate, because you just put a damper on this lovely report. So we'll have to end the show on that point, Donovan. Thank you very much. And that's where we will leave it here on Taiwan this week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. All right. Have a great weekend. Who happened to also give us some lovely garbage truck music for a while there, yes. somewhere in the show, <laughs> if anybody heard it, because I certainly did. And just a reminder to our listeners, there will be no show on the radio or on the podcast next Friday, March the first, as we'll be away for the two-day two to eight memorial holiday. And thanks for tuning into this edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps we can get access to all our previous shows tune in again next friday evening at eight for another informative look at the top stories of the week with taiwan this week and don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website icrt.com.tw now keep it here for more music and news only on icrt fm 100